Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. It's not so that you love something or so that you hate something. It's so that you understand something better. That we understand it, that it doesn't happen again, and that we hold people accountable. Yeah. It's a tough kind of a story to tell. He gets blamed for starting the riots. It, it upset me tremendously. They, you know, sounded the alarm. How was what happened reported on during and right after those first few days in July? This weekend, 106 years ago, East St. Louis burned. What became known as a race riot ended in the massacre of more than 100 black residents. Thousands more were made homeless as mobs of white workers put their neighborhoods to flame. East St. Louis has a complicated relationship with the 1917 massacre, and current residents, descendants of survivors, and historians are still working to preserve its legacy and raise awareness of what happened there. On Sunday, a new historical marker will be dedicated on the campus of Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Here to talk about the meaning of this new marker and why it's still important for us to remember what happened in East St. Louis in 1917, we are joined by Will Shannon, Executive Director of the St. Clair County Historical Society. Will, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And also with us is Jay Willis, an author and executive director of the East St. Louis Historical Society and part of the effort to place the marker being dedicated this Sunday. Jay, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you both. Now, this new marker, let's begin with that. It's not the first of its kind. Tell us, Will, about the significance of its location. Well, the significance of the placement of the state historical marker uh, has to do with the events of, of, the, of the massacre itself, uh, where the Wyvetter Young Higher Education Campus is today um, would have been in the midst of one of the neighborhoods that was destroyed mm-hmm. during, during, the, during those, those events in 1917. Mm-hmm. So that's the significance of, uh, of where the marker is being were placed and dedicated. Right. And there are other markers known as sacred sites that were placed during the 100th anniversary in 2017. How does this marker that you're commemorating this weekend, how does that fit in with the larger effort? Well, I think um, it 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 helps to fill out that commemorative landscape that was that was started in 2017 with the, I believe there are 26 sacred sites, and this falls, the marker this marker falls in between a few of them, so um, that can be added to uh, sort of the uh, <clears throat> the path that was created to. Uh, follow the events on the day of the riots and sort of become a a center for for commemoration for remembrance uh while being a part of that largely vanished landscape mm-hmm. i mean the area looks nothing how it would have looked 106 years ago right so that's one of the how that would kind of fit in with that mm-hmm. now jay as a, a an everyday citizen 
How did you become involved in the effort to add a new historical marker? Well, actually, I work very closely with Will, who is also a member of the society. We are actually both on each other's boards. Oh, great. Okay. And, uh, and so what we had an opportunity to do is to, again, to add on to the sacred sites uh, plaques that are already placed all over the city. Mm-hmm. And this one coming from the state of Illinois, you know, has such a large impact. Um, it is a 300-pound uh, marker, and it is amazing just to look at. And so what we wanted to do, again, was to make sure that that is something that when people come to East St. Louis, they are going to be drawn to this location, mm-hmm. to this higher education campus, and to be able to see this. But for myself, Mr. Petty, uh, Reginald Petty, came to me and said, I want you to be a, a part of the East St. Louis Historical Society. And he brought me in, and that is how I came to be in the position I'm in right now. Okay. I'd like to invite you into the conversation. Do you have stories of how the 1917 race massacre affected your family? How can we as a region honor the memory of the victims and survivors? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpr.org. Now, Will, for those who have never heard about what happened on July 2nd and 3rd of 1917, please walk us through the massacre itself, you know, how it started and how it played out. Well, to to give you sort of the one side of an index card version, you know, mm-hmm. of, 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 of what happened, um, the, there had been growing tension in the weeks leading up to when the, the, the riots happened um, over labor issues, um, that the, a lot of the predominantly white labor unions in the area were becoming more and more angry about what they perceived as black workers coming in to the area, taking, taking jobs from their members. Mm-hmm. Now, this was... The, the 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 black workers who were in the area they were part of the great migration i mean that which had which is you know this huge demographic movement in the 20th century that recenters african american life in america um, and those tensions start to build and start to build until they have the unions hold a very contentious meeting on july 2nd at the labor temple on collinsville avenue where uh, the crowd is whipped up into a frenzy uh, by the the speakers there and basically goes forth from that meeting into the streets and that's when the rampage through the streets starts. And it's really not quelled until the next day. Mm -hmm. And what was it that stopped it? Well, eventually what stopped it was the Illinois National Guard. The National Guard had been there since the second, but was not mobilized, was not used, sort of stood by and watched a lot of it happen. Mm-hmm. And the same could be said for the East St. Louis City Police. Uh, they, they were watching this go on, uh, largely in the, the, the black neighborhoods on the south end of the city. And they stood by and and did nothing as and and weren't mobilized. Mm-hmm. How was what happened reported on during and right after those first few days in July? Well, the the reporting actually one of the the most important 
early on the ground reports comes from Carlos Hurd from the St. Louis Post Dispatch, who, uh, when you know word came back that 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 uh, violence had erupted in East St. Louis, he goes over and starts to report on this. And his reporting is the first of many harrowing accounts of what was going on. I mean, you're reading, and you read, and I know Jay has some of them with her, some of the accounts of survivors. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of shock that they were seeing what they were seeing, that they couldn't, this was, they couldn't wrap their heads around the kind of violence that was going on here. Yeah. And, um, you know, which is telling, uh, you know, even in a period which is seen as a low point in American race relations, uh, to see this erupt in the streets uh, uh, was was something that no one who experienced it forgot. Mm-hmm. Now, Jay, you'd mentioned Reginald Petty, and he's a, an 87-year-old who lives in East St. Louis. Yes. And he spent decades talking to groups about what happened in 1917, you among them. And he told our producer, Danny Wisentowski, this week that he didn't learn about the massacre, which had happened near his own home until the 1960s when he was in graduate school. When I was about eight or nine, my grandfather uh, talked about uh, shooting across the tracks and white people shooting back from them. And I heard him mention this on a number of different occasions, with dis- discussing this with, with his friends. And at the time, obviously, I didn't know it was shocking, but I didn't really know what he was, the history of it. And I really didn't know the history of it until I was in graduate school at Southern Illinois University. And there was a fellow by the name of Redwick who wrote a book on the East St. Louis riots. And when I read that book, I said, my God, this is what my grandfather was talking about back then, and he was involved in this. And uh, it, it upset me tremendously because I hadn't heard about this in high school. Or my parents didn't talk about it, you know. So to me, it's critical that this, be, this should be known in our schools. This should be a part of the school curriculum. And Jay, you were talking earlier about how this marker, the 300-pound marker, is going to be on a campus and that, that is important. And, you know, uh, Reginald Petty was talking about how he learned, kind of made some connections. Your own grandparents moved to East St. Louis in the 1930s, and that was more than a dozen years after the July 17 events. What did they tell you about what happened in July of 1917, and what did they call it? Well, my grandparents actually were again came in afterwards and what they were able to do at that point they were working at like hunter and armor at the packing house and the people that they lived by and that they worked with were regaling them with stories about what they had heard and what had happened Mm. during that time and one of the things that that spurred in me was to try to find out more about it and as i became more acquainted with reginald petty we looked at not only what happened on july 2nd and but then further what happened afterwards you know what happened in october Mm -hmm. with the trials and so mr petty and i actually got together doing that research reviewing the crisis and several other things and we um, we penned the play, The Phoenix Trials. Mm-hmm. And in The Phoenix Trials is where we actually have some um, testimonial accounts from Daisy Westbrook, uh, as well as uh, Samuel Kennedy and the Kennedy family and then the Mose Campbell family. Yeah. So in our play, 
the descendants of these individuals actually portrayed the parts of their family members. And it's very, very moving. Yeah. And so that that art piece that was created out of the, the testimonies of people who were not there at the time, but had to hear about it. And then there's this, you know, history question, um, what is taught in schools and right. what is not. Um, from what you've learned over time, Jay, what do you understand about the massacre's effect on the region and whether there was any any amount of recovery afterward? Well, one of the very interesting things that happened is the city of Kinloch actually came into existence. And that was quite a few of the people from East St. Louis that went over and crossed the East Bridge mm -hmm. into St. Louis, uh, created that community. But in addition to that, the St. Louis Urban League was born out of this. I know when uh, Ida B. Wells came down on July 3rd, and W.E.B. Du Bois also came to East St. Louis as part of the aftermath, almost immediately after this happened, they, you know, sounded the alarm. You know, they made sure uh, there was a, a march in, in uh, New York City regarding this uh, atrocity in East St. Louis. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, people clad in white, hundreds and hundreds of them walk and die. But again, for the region, the St. Louis Urban League came into existence and is still in existence today. Mm -hmm. Now, Reginald Petty, um, well, he had referenced a, a book published in 1964 by a historian at Southern Illinois University named Elliot Rudwick. That book was titled Race Riot in East St. Louis. Why did it take six or so decades for this incident to get a historian's attention, especially given what Jay has shared about the way people were talking about it? Well, that that gap comes, I think, a lot from you know the the drift of hi of the historical profession at at the time. I mean, in the in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, that wouldn't have been a, a topic that would have been confronted. And also, from a practical standpoint, um, a lot of the archival records weren't available, and a lot of the trial uh, records were were still sealed. But what Rudwick was able to do was one of the senators who was on the on the in, involved in the formal uh, congressional investigation into this. He was able, his personal papers when he died included a lot of material about the trials. And that's and and that plus materials that were in the possession of the Illinois Secretary of State, a guy named Edward Beveridge. Um, he was able to put those two things together. And Rudwick, he was a historian, but but by training he was a sociologist. Uh. And and so he kind of he was interested in things like social movements, and that's why and and years down the road, uh, history started to think in that way more, mm -hmm. you know, as as the 20th century went on. Yeah. It went less from political history and more towards social history. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. We'll pick up with uh, where we've left off. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. 
Before the break, Will, you were talking about why it took so long for a, a, an historical book, a book of history, to come out about the 1917 uh, massacre. And you had mentioned something about an investigation. So can you tell us, you know, were there consequences of any kind for those who participated in violence, which included you know, lynching and arson against Black East St. Louisans? Um, were there consequences? Yes. Were they uh, severe? No. Um, in total, there were 142 indictments of people, of, of white residents who were involved in the riots. Of those 142, only one person ended up serving jail time. Three further of those were fined. Um, by April of 1918, all the cases were done. The rest were dismissed for want of prosecution. And uh, in 1924, Illinois Governor Len Small issues kind of a blanket pardon for anyone who had been involved. So, uh, were, uh, and on the flip side, um, the biggest case of a black resident who uh, was uh, wrapped up in this was a guy named Dr. Leroy Bundy. Um, who was a leader in the community, prominent resident, he gets blamed for starting the riots. Um, and after a very poorly run trial, uh, he ends up in prison. Uh, but that's later overturned by the Illinois Supreme Court. But he spends a, he spends a, over a year in prison uh, uh, after that. So, you know, for uh, for legal legal repercussions, uh, they were. Uh, I would say predictably few for mm -hmm. the time period and how the justice system operated or didn't at the time. Yeah. Jay, in the research and uh, and all of the, the stories that you have heard, was there anything sort of connected to who was punished and who wasn't that, that came out? You know, uh, the, the Dr. Leroy Bundy story is the one that we hear the most about. But um, what was so compelling to me was actually the testimony of the survivors. And, and if I may take a moment just to read a little bit of the Daisy Westbrook testimony. Mm -hmm. She tells her cousin Louise, the papers did not describe all the horrors. It was awful. People were being shot down and thrown back into fire if they tried to escape. Some were shot and then burned. Others were dragged around with ropes about their necks. One man was hung to a telegraph post. We saw two men shot down. One was almost in front of our house. One man and his wife, a storekeeper, were burned alive. Now this, Daisy was a young woman mm -hmm. when she saw this. Now she and her family actually were sent over to the city jail where they were held overnight. And then that morning they were walked across the East Bridge to St. Louis. So that was how they actually escaped death, but they did not escape seeing the violence, and that was imprinted on them going forward. Mm -hmm. There are other testimonies of the Samuel Kennedy one that was actually uh, very brilliantly written in the uh, Riverfront Times, you know, that actually shows the accounts where, you know, they saw, they had to actually build a raft out, out of, of uh, old homes and, and things just to navigate across the Mississippi River. Right. And that was how they were able to survive. So 
Dottie and Terry Kennedy relayed that story to us. And it was just unbelievable, you know, to think that this was how they survived under the shadow of night, building this raft, putting everyone on it, and then traversing the Mississippi River. And we know how those currents are. It's almost unimaginable that they were able to do that. But I think that it speaks to the resilience of the people, Mm -hmm. you know, that they wanted to survive, they needed to survive, and they needed to make sure that these stories were told. And like Mr. Petty, I had not heard. I mean, my my grandparents had said a couple of things, the things that they had heard, but they didn't see them. So there wasn't as much impact. But that's why the play was called The Phoenix Trials, because through all all of those trials in October, we rose. Mm -hmm. And and that's what we saw. Yeah. Now, we heard earlier from Reginald Petty, an East St. Louis resident who spent many decades trying to educate people about what happened in his hometown back in 1917. Petty is, again... He's 87 years old, and he's told the story many times. He told our producer, Danny Wissentowski, that a lot of people just have a hard time wrapping their head around the atrocities. It's a tough kind of a story to tell. So you still have some people who kind of don't, don't, don't really want to hear about it. But I also think they, they want a story in which... Uh, in which the right people won. Okay, does that make sense? <laughs> okay. Uh, and it de- didn't come out like that in this riot. And uh, so I think we, we, we have our work to do to continue. We're gonna, I think we're going to have to have to y- use things like the marker to really get it out at a, at, at a slow level, at a slow pace, it looks like. You know, it's like it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, it's moving. Well, you're shaking your head as you were listening to Reginald there, what do you make of his point? Well, I mean, I, I, I think he's, he's absolutely dead on. Um, at being a professional historian myself, um, history isn't always pleasant. History isn't always nice. History isn't always easy to hear. But if we want to understand, because that's what learning history is about. It's not so that you love something or so that you hate something. It's so that you understand something better. And to get that understanding, these you're going to have to go to some tough places. You know, there, there, there is no easier, softer way to do this. But once you gain that understanding, hopefully from that comes empathy and from that empathy comes action mm-hmm. you know that that's what should lead you uh you know this shouldn't just be something you learn about that happened in the past yeah because the issues that were arose arose in the riots are not resolved the last line on the historical marker is the community still seeks justice and one of the ways that you can seek that justice is by understanding what happened and why it happened where it did. Mm-hmm. Jay, from your perspective, I mean, what what does that justice look like? And what do you think are the biggest challenges to it? You know, I think one of the major things about that would be to understand that this is critical information that needs to be shared throughout that community. Not just the people that live there, but the people who educate people who live there. Mm-hmm. 
there are teachers and, and administrators who were not from East St. Louis. They're from other parts you know, of the country. And it's really critically important that we understand what happened in East St. Louis. You know, you, you hear a lot about the race riots, but under the, the, the 2017 commission, they actually renamed it as a pogrom. That is mm-hmm. not a riot. Uh, you know, a, a riot you know, gives you the perspective that everybody was equally armed and fighting against each other. Right. This was a, a massacre of, of an ethnic community. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so when you think of that as being a, a, a pogrom, you know, you actually get a different feel for it. So one of the things that I think that we get out of that is to understand what actually happened, make sure that it never happens again, but also to make sure that your children and your children's children are educated about this, so that they know, not so that they would be bitter about it but because again you know when you look at Rosewood when you look at Springfield Illinois you look at Tulsa Oklahoma East St. Louis and the riot in 1917 falls right in there with them but it also sits in anonymity mm-hmm. and that should not be the case you know and and when there are well, it, this concerted effort to uh, erase the history of African Americans by mm-hmm. by some people that's going on right now we need to make sure that that the recompense for that is that we know about it and that we make sure that we understand it that it doesn't happen again and that we hold people accountable yeah so a pogrom is what we should call it is there anything else that would apply here should we stop calling it a race riot go with massacre well on the actual um marker it is the 1917 race massacre race massacre because that is exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Well, if for both of you, you know, Jay, you had talked about the resilience. If there is something that you had to tell somebody about this race massacre that shows a different side, not just the awful part of it, what would that be? You know, maybe as an introduction to a, a conversation that you can continue on just in a couple of sentences. I mean, I I would say um, focusing on the significance, putting it putting it in its time period and its perspective. You can draw a direct line between 1917 and, like Jay mentioned, Springfield, Illinois, in 1908, Tulsa in 1921. This is very much in the consciousness of the civil rights movement as it develops in the 19... I mean, the civil rights movement never really stopped, you mm-hmm. know, and, and it, it was something that's taken on different forms. But the um, organizing and the voices speaking out about this continued through time. So this is a, a, a moment in which the dire... St- uh, uh, position of race relations in the United States in that it become comes into clear focus. I mean, everyone from Marcus Garvey to Theodore Roosevelt speak out about it. So, Will Shannon is the executive director of the St. Clair County Historical Society, and Jay Willis is the executive director of the East St. Louis Historical Society. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. 
St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.